0: Welcome back. Hit Factory here. Just Aaron on this side of the mic. Carly is taking the week off, but if you're not. She will be back sooner rather than later. Uh, but to help me with today's episode, I have commissioned something of a subject matter expert on today's film, an SME, if you will. Uh, I have brought to the program journalist and writer Maggie Sirota. Maggie, thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you for having me. As leading North American scholar of this particular film, I'm stoked that you recognized my authority.
0: <laughs> uh, <laughs> it, it was uh, well noted. And and when we were discussing uh, what films to talk about, of course, this one came up. I, you, I don't even think you gave me a short list. I think it was a very uh, specific. I would like to talk about this.
1: I gave you a choice, and there is definitely a common thread in the choice, which is Anthony LaPaglia. Which, if you ever have a chance to talk to Anthony LaPaglia, take it because he is. A, I will sit and talk to him for hours. He is a lovely guy.
0: <laughs> okay, noted, uh, Anthony. If you're listening to this, mm-hmm. come on the show anytime, any film, by all means, uh, yeah. join us. Uh, but the film in question is the 1993 Mike Myers comedy. So I married an ax murderer. Uh, and Maggie as our expert on, Mm. so I married an ax murderer. I am curious where you studied, uh, Mm. how you got your credentials, what, what the film (laughs) means to you.
1: Um, I remember when it was in the theaters and I was really intrigued by it. I don't think I saw it. Like I was, it was like some summer at the Jersey shore. And I think I saw like that summer, like in the line of fire with some dude on a date and, um, some other crap. I think I saw a single white female that same year and I got to watch Steven Weber get, you know, get, you know, get a stiletto through his tempo, which by the way, when you're talking 90, 90s politics, that movie is rich.
0: <laughs> Excellent one. Yeah. yeah.
1: Gender politics, like <laughs> one of the most offensive, like, you know, gay neighbor stereotypes you're ever going to see. like. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, so that one just kind of escaped my purview, but it was just like, I thought he was, Mike Myers was really funny. This I was probably like 13 or 14. Um, actually, no, I was 14 when it came out. Um, and then it just kind of went away. It was my understanding that it was just like, just made like no cultural mark and bombed. And then years later, like probably 1998, it was my first year of college and I was a terrible high school student. So I was still living at home and working like a shitty mall job and going to community college. And like, before like going to my shitty mall job, like I would like just have like movies on, on comedy central and Axe murderer was always on. It felt like, Mm -hmm. where I just started like kind of like watching certain snippets of the movie and like, Whoa, this is funny. Like what, what, why is this playing at (laughs) two in the afternoon on Thursday? (laughs) So that's kind of where it started. I think it was the scenes that really hooked me were the ones with Anthony LaPaglia and um, and um, what's his name um, Alan Arkin. Yeah, how, I can't believe I just what's his name Alan Arkin.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's okay, we're still warming up. Um, but no, those scenes uh, we'll we'll talk more about them because yeah. there there's a, a very uh, rich roster of mm-hmm. uh, cameos in this film from some, yeah. some comedy greats. If you had just thrown me the list. Without any context, I probably would have picked uh, Hartman or, or Groden as, mm. as my pick as, as a favorite. But Arkin is up there too for me. I, I love The In Laws. It's one of my all time favorite comedies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's magnificent yeah. in his couple of scenes here.
1: Mm. Oh, gosh. Um, when I talked to Anthony about it, he was just in awe of, like, he just refers to Alan Arka as like an actor's actor just incredible like you're just like if you're on a set with him you're just going to get a master class on how to act and he's also apparently a great guy
0: like you can't you can't beat that it's uh i mean there's so many of those kind of great comedic talents like that here like i already mentioned um but of course we start with mike myers charlie mckenzie finds something wrong she's a thief
2: she was in the mafia she smelled like soup with every girl he dates when Charlie meets Harriet. Hi. Hi. What do you look for in a woman you date? But I'd really have to go with (laughs) breast size. (laughs) He knows she's the one. You have the face of every angel. (laughs) Ah, 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 I give, I give. I'm Charlie's father. Except for one thing. She might be a serial killer. She murders her husbands on their honeymoons, then changes her identity and marries again. I'm afraid that you're going to leave me. going to
0: cleave you i'd heard of this guy before i watched this movie if you can believe it he was he was somewhat popular Mm -hmm. uh (laughs) uh, with with multi-generations of of moviegoers now of course because he started uh uh on saturday night live uh and before that even he was you know a second city alum he was doing city tv things in in toronto Mm -hmm. if i remember correctly uh, where he workshopped a lot of those characters. But uh, wh- in London, he um, he started like an
1: improv theater with his buddy, Neil Malarkey, who he ended mm-hmm. up doing like a lot of rewrites of Axe Murderer with too.
0: Right. He and, he and Malarkey are effectively the, the writers of this film here, which is I think why some of it feels so in line with a lot of Meyer's strengths as a comedian.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's kind of like a rich history of this film and what could have been and different iterations of like, you know, Harriet's character, like, because she starts out, she is an actual axe murderer. Mm-hmm. That's like, that was the vision. And it was supposed to be like, well, you know, you can't win them all. She's beautiful. Like, she can cook. You know, I'm in love. You know, no one's perfect. No, everyone's got flaws. This one just killed, you know, this lady's just <laughs> homicidal. Like,
0: <laughs> Yeah, it's not the worst thing in the world. And, you know, going along with that, if we're talking about, you know, the the multiple iterations of this film and, mm-hmm. uh, and, and what could have been, Mm-hmm. Uh, was surprised to read that uh, at some point during this, it was in fact uh, Sharon Stone who was potentially mm-hmm. going to play the Harriet character. Uh,
1: so, my sources everyone, the, the name that was brought up to me in my interviews was Kim Basinger. The studio okay. was apparently dead set on Kim Basinger. And I'm kind of curious if that has anything to do with like her cameo in Wayne's World since that was such a big hit. If they were trying, mm-hmm. maybe trying to. Bring some of that magic over. I mean, they were definitely trying to cast, like, you know, like your bombshell blonde in this role, which I don't really know if I buy, considering Charlie's kind of, a, you know, like Mike Myers' character is kind of an everyman. Like, which Nancy Travis is gorgeous, but I think she kind of seemed like, you know, like she's not, she's not like a bombshell. She's the girl mm-hmm. next door. Like,
0: yeah, definitely. And I, I think that it actually kind of works better. Yeah. I mean, if she <laughs> is, you know, this. Uh, titular axe murderer and mm-hmm. is someone who's actually killing people yeah. it almost sort of makes more sense for them to go with someone like that blonde bombshell mm-hmm. so that it's you know clear that she's kind of uh luring in one of these more homely everyman kind yeah. of characters right yeah. who's, who's just going to be completely smitten and and mm-hmm. Uh, magnetized and drawn in by her beauty. Yeah. Um, but but Basinger sounds like, uh, yeah, a great choice and you do get that kind of comedic continuity from from her part in Wayne's World.
1: Mm-hmm. They really had to fight for Nancy, too. Well, She was also um, living with Rob Freed, um, one of the producers. And, you know, they're married now of kids. She actually took years off from acting, like, just to raise, you know, raising their family. Mm-hmm. And then, I think, returned to it a couple of years ago. But um, Or whenever that Tim Allen, like, sitcom happens. But... <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah like they that was a battle like i mean there were lots of battles with this movie and some of them were you know mike were just fighting with mike just to be like can we get through this day
0: <laughs> yeah you know mike myers obviously like I, I said you know um peaking during this period here at the beginning of the 90s mm-hmm. he's coming off of the huge hit of wayne's world Um mm-hmm. uh, and they're doing this movie now. A lot of these cameos that we talked about already, a lot of the people who are drawn into this film's orbit uh, mm-hmm. are there specifically to work with Mike Myers. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and even before he had kind of gained sort of that level of power, of that influence, mm-hmm. I guess, uh, it's it's sort of well-documented that that Mike Myers is kind of notorious for being temperamental on sets. He's a yeah. little bit of a perfectionist
1: yeah he's difficult i mean i I wouldn't really um even just dealing with his people was difficult for me like um, you know, like I reached out and asked his publicist, like, hey, I'm a big fan, I'm writing this anniversary piece, you know for me, this is kind of you know about how this is kind of this formative cult movie um you know that wasn't appreciated of his time but had this great life afterwards. that was kind of my pitch, and she just told me his publicist told me that he's away with his family on vacation. <laughs> So I'm like, okay. So then I just start reaching out to other people throughout that summer. This was probably 2018. So I'm re- it's that spring and I'm reaching out to other people. And I reach out to Neil Malarkey. And then I, I notice that like his, he just forwards it. He forwards the email to Mike's publicist. And she reaches out to me like as if this is the first time she's learning about this. Hey, what's this story about? Who's involved? Like, so I tell her like, I've got this guy, this guy, you know, this actor, the kid that played this little brother, like, <laughs> like, I'm just kind of going through all these people, like Rob Freed, Robbie Fox, like all these, and then she's like, I never hear anything again. Hmm. And then like, kind of coming, you know, like after the summer, where I just hear all the story, all these stories about what happened on set. Like, I reach out again. I'm like, hey, I know he wasn't available this summer. And um, can I get a response to some of these things that like, he, that were said about him? Like I, before we get a press, I want to, you know, like just. Give him the opportunity to say, do you respond to like stories and just things, whatever. And all of a sudden she writes back to me in this panic, like, why don't why why would you just reach out to me right before this is you're supposed to give us time? And like, but she was acting like I never, like, this is the first time she was ever hearing of the story. And I was just so <laughs> baffled. To the point where all of a sudden, like, like his publicist had called my boss and tried to tell her that I had just blindsided her, which was not the case. But like. So I'm, like, producing all these emails. And then she got, like, my boss's cell phone number and was calling her. And my boss was like, how did you get my cell phone number? So eventually they just say, like, well, listen, he'll give you an email interview, write out your questions. So I do. And then she just comes back to me. It's like, listen, he's on vacation with his family. Things are just too crazy right now. Like, number one, vacation from what? No, <laughs> Like, he hasn't really worked in a while. Number two. Mm-hmm. Like number two, he. This is what you told me he was like months ago. Like, how long is this vacation? Is this like the entire summer of this vacation? Like,
0: uh, they must have like a a flowchart where it's like if they ask about this specific film and this specific entity, yeah, Mike is on vacation.
1: <laughs> like, and all it was was an anniversary piece. Like, it was just like about like my fan. Like, part of it's about fandom, you know, and just like impact and like why mm-hmm. this movie stands the test of time, and. <laughs> It was just wild. Like, this isn't a hit piece. (laughs) But I can imagine why someone representing him, like, thinking, you know what I mean? Like, talking about this particular movie where he was apparently notoriously badly behaved. Mm -hmm. Like, probably at a time where he's probably trying to work again. Like, maybe they don't want this, you know, like, I mean, that was my issue. Like, maybe he panicked about, like, people are just going to talk candidly. You know, which some people did, but off the record. like. (laughs) Mm -hmm.
0: It's well noted and the interesting thing about it too and and I don't know if it's because of of Meyer's sort of outsized influence in the entertainment community or or in you know Hollywood but mm-hmm. a lot of the directors who have spoken about tensions or a lot of the kind of like alleged conflicts that happened yeah. weren't weren't necessarily walked back but definitely kind of, watered down over time. I know that there was a lot more of that heat, um, kind of uh, around some comments that Penelope Spheris made after Wayne's world. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and then she eventually, I think kind of quieted that a little bit and, and was a little bit more even handed, I guess I'll Mm -hmm. say in quotes about it. Um, same with Thomas Schlamm, Schlamm, Schlammy, I don't Uh,
1: know. Tommy Schlammy.
0: Tommy Schlammy. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Tommy Shalami, uh, the director really of this I talked film. to
1: him in so many different times, in so many different ways. Like nothing. I Like he was president of the DGA. I was trying to go through the DGA. I went through mm. like his manager. I tried his agent. Like I was just like <laughs> trying. To, I so many, you know, cause he was talked about a lot too. So it's like, and it was, it seemed my kind of what Rob Freed told me and what I kind of took away from that was like, this was something he had wanted to forget for a long
3: time. Hmm.
1: Like this sounds like this was a very bad like experience for him. And what kind of stuck out to me is that he had like a partnership of Aaron Sorkin. Like he found Aaron Sorkin easier to work with than Mike Myers. <laughs> you know what I mean? What does that tell you?
0: <laughs> yeah, right. And during like uh, Sorkin's big cocaine period, too, probably.
1: Uh, yeah. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, so, you know, Notoriously Kind of Difficult uh, seems to be a bit of a perfectionist, really very meticulous in his, yeah, you know, concern about his performance, um, mm-hmm. and I'm curious how you feel about it in, in this film particularly. I, obviously, he's playing two different roles, and we'll certainly get to Stuart in oh, a minute, yeah. but him, yeah. but him as, as Charlie, as Charlie McKenzie, the sort of everyman guy, Yeah. Uh, how do you feel about Mike Myers and his presence in this movie as our, as our hero?
1: I mean, well, this so the San Francisco setting—that's Mike, and it's so that's um like the kind of fascination with like beat poets. That's also Mike. Um, you know, the, this this character was supposed to be Jewish, um, and now he's you know Scott. You know, he's first generation American, Scott. That's Mike. So he was <laughs> a big creative, you know, just like a driving creative force. Um, I mean, but something when you when you really look at he interrogate like his vision of San Francisco, it's like. This is a, a city full of white people. You know
0: what I mean? Yeah, yeah this, is, this is the thing. I mean, a lot of this movie feels very 90s, very dated. Yeah. Um the, the beat poet culture specifically feels like mm-hmm. a holdover, especially in 93 of mm-hmm. a, a generation just before that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And also the idea that anybody could survive in my beloved San Francisco on whatever kind of money he's possibly making as a poet um, is also.
1: Okay. So that's kind of a little bit of a point of contention of Robbie Fox, the original screenwriter. So like in his versions of the script, the Charlie character um, like Charlie was a, um, he was like the newscaster that like, that did like the dollars and cents segment. And I think there was like a funny name, like a punny name for it. I forget what it is. Um, so um, the Charlie character that Gary Shandling was with somebody, like he would find out a lot of clues on air, on like so. For example, like the sports cast would be like, "Ralph Elliot was killed." Basketball star Ralph Kelly Elliot was killed, and then so Ch- Charlie would be like, "What about the wife? What about the wife on the air?" Which sounds like really funny. <laughs> <laughs> Like Gary Shandling, what what? He's just freaking yeah. out on camera. <laughs> and I think that was a bit of a point of contention because when I asked Robbie Fox about it, like, I mean, that's a big mystery. How does Charlie live? What does he actually do for a living? He's not doing like he's not like doing slam poetry to pay for his palatial loft. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, there is an iteration of the script I found online, which I which I think like Mike and Neil must have written. And there's an opening scene where it establishes that Charlie is the manager at um, City Lights Bookstore.
0: Uh-huh. Mm-hmm.
1: Which definitely doesn't explain the palatial, you know, like, the palatial loft with a nice little roof deck he relaxes on at one point with his, you know, panoramic, panoramic city view, but... <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah i mean that would be fitting too you know city lights is actually right across the street on columbus Mm -hmm. from vesuvio which is the the bar that is uh repurposed as the cafe here Um, another very funny part of the film Mm -hmm. you know when we open up here and we see this massive like multi-story cafe it's hopping everyone's Mm -hmm. in there just like partying and chatting it up and smoking their cigarettes all there uh to enjoy some live beat poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah.
1: Yeah. It is hopping it <laughs> from is, a guy. Is... Yeah.
0: <laughs> it's very popular. We get to follow the enormous cappuccino all the way yeah. from the, from the espresso bar to, to Charlie's spot. Um,
1: that was Mike's idea, according to everyone, which is kind of wild. He didn't like moving cameras. So that trapping, sh- like, which was like kind of a big point of contention with him and Tommy Shlami. But, um, mm-hmm. Did't remind a tracking shout if it was his idea
0: <laughs> just you know full aside here. I hadn't seen this movie in a long time it had been a little mm-hmm. while. I remembered enjoying it, thinking it was quite funny. Mm-hmm. These scenes specifically with the with the beat poetry mm-hmm. uh are are when on this watch I start to kind of tense up a little bit. I'm like, ooh, this could be really corny in a in a not good way. I don't really yeah. remember uh I was pleased to find that it was about as like goofy and fun as like a yeah. parody of beat poetry can be and and you know Mike's selling it really well um, but he's and- really only got that one bit doesn't he yeah. <laughs> he's just got that one <laughs> one poem
1: yeah <laughs> so the woman that plays his ex um the woman who supposedly stole Mike's cat mm-hmm. um that is Sheila Kelly her husband Richard Schiff is sitting in the audience and West Wing um West Wing actors know him as Toby yeah like he's been in so much stuff, but I think that's probably what he's best known for.
0: Okay. I had no idea. I did not I didn't clock Richard Schiff in that crowd. But I love that. Um, I'm I'm a I'm a Schiff fan myself. I like him quite a bit. <laughs> yeah, that introduction is very funny though. You know, the stole my heart and my cat kind of mm-hmm. situation. She's a thief. And we get a sense of Mike Myers' character, uh, Charlie, and his his total fear of commitment, yeah. uh his his sense that he has broken up with every woman he's ever been with for reasons that have nothing to do quite with his fear of marriage and, and, you know, Mm -hmm. unwillingness to commit, but they've always got reasons. They've they're Mm -hmm. either kleptomaniacs. One of them smelled just like soup. Mm -hmm. He said, um, so it's a fun kind of premise here. I think that, uh, Mm -hmm. plays well, they don't explore it too much in the film. I think there's a different version of this film maybe made in like, the 2010s or even today where yeah. they, they make Charlie a little bit more of I uh, I don't know, a little bit more of a flawed character. We love Charlie from the beginning here. And he just, he just doesn't like that women sometimes smell like beef soup. That's, yeah. that's relatable. Of course.
1: The way Rob Freed's explained it to me was that his fear of commitment, it was really more so a fear of his own mortality because like seeing kind of life as this linear series of benchmarks, you know, you, you, mm-hmm go to school, you graduate, you go to college, you get a job, you get married. Like, each one of these benchmarks is just one notch closer to death. And so for Mike's character, he felt that he was terrified of his own mortality. And he was terrified that marriage and commitment brought him closer to death.
0: Hmm.
1: Hence, like, (laughs) I think that's what also kind of ties into, like, the axe murderer. Like, where death becomes very literal.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's very well conceived. I actually really like that. You know yeah. that there's, uh, yeah, it, it does kind of give it this sense of just lingering mortality in everything, and of course, death acts mm-hmm. murdering, being something that cuts, cuts someone's life abruptly uh, short. Mm-hmm. Uh, well conceived, well considered. I like that quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this scene, we're also introduced to Maggie, your beloved Anthony LaPaglia as mm-hmm. Tony. In the best costume in the film. Oh
1: yes, yeah, Serpico.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, and and Tony has big ambitions of being, yeah, a a sort of grizzled Serpico style, like a uh, plane. Like exactly, he wants to be a cool ass cop, Uh, and in this scene, he is, as Mike Myers mentions, dressed like Huggy Bear from from Starsky and Hutch.
1: Okay, can something like I don't know maybe this is generational I just really have a hard time with a sensitive poet and a cop being friends like Mm -hmm. just kind of like what are you what are you connecting on I guess they were must have been childhood friends since like like Charlie comes over and Anthony and like Anthony Apolly's character is already so chummy with his family like but I think that's that that kind of guy friendship is really between them is I find really fascinating (laughs)
0: Yeah, I mean it works because of the sort of dynamic of the two actors, but mm-hmm. you are right. And it's it's a thing we get into a lot when we talk about films of the nineteen nineties where cops mm-hmm. are, are portrayed either as like hyper competent, like super adept, yeah, well-to-do guys who can like get the job done. I'm thinking of like Keanu- them every time. Exactly. Yeah. You know, the the, Ke- the Keanos and Speeds and every like whatever yeah. the whatever the case here, they will Figure it out. They'll get it done. Largely, I think, as a response to, uh, you know, the early '90s and and all of the conflicts around the, the Rodney King beating and subsequent trial. Yeah, really, really trying to reconcile that that image in Hollywood and specifically with the LAPD. But they're either that kind of guy, mm-hmm. uh, or they're just like a chummy, fun, mm-hmm. best friend character who never really has to do the job of policing. Yeah just has to kind of be a cop as like that that's my day job kind of
1: yeah thing. yeah <laughs> but it's through you Charlie like that I can realize my you know my fantasy of being the hero cop
0: <laughs> and when he finally gets the opportunity he's not very good at it is he yeah. he kind of misses the mark a little bit
1: yeah yeah well um some now that we're on Anthony Lapaglia's character like when I talked to him I don't think this ended up in the article but um he said that, like, he's done over, like, 50 or 100 movies. Like, his his IMDb page is hefty. Like, this mm-hmm. is a man who works. <laughs> and of all the films and television shows, everything he's done, he says he gets asked about three in the street. Like, whenever he's, like, if someone stops him, three. Mm-hmm. Axe Murderer, Empire Records, and then an Aust- Australian film called Lantana he did with Stephen Ray. Huh. That's, like, a dra- that's like just a full-on drama. Mm-hmm. I think he might be a cop in that too.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Lots of opportunities to play cops in Hollywood and and other studio systems as well, I'm sure. Yeah. But that's really interesting. I I mean, I guess it would make sense. You know, you have these two films, Axe Murder and Empire Records in the 90s specifically that are huge kind of cult movies, right? They have like, you know, generations of fans who are just like very invested in it. As, you know, like an anecdote to that, when I posted on our favorite website twitter.com that i was watching rewatching this film uh just an endless flurry of folks replying with either i love this one or their favorite lines from the movie it's just an endlessly quotable kind of yeah. like text and i was getting so so many of them yeah. um and it just kind of i think shows the the sort of hold that it has on specifically i think like you know the, the millennial generation itself yeah. here that's that we've seen it so much
1: yeah like we kind of get like an introduction like i mean i know that this kind of meta comedy this meta commentary on cops and stuff it has been done with like you know like police like you know like police files please you know like i'm gonna get you sucker. you know but mm-hmm. it's kind of interesting to see like that kind of re deconstruction <laughs> like just with like a meek, like, you know, like I love the idea of the very meek um, police captain.
2: I hear from the boys upstairs, you've been sticking your nose in a Ralph Elliott case. Yes, Captain. Don't yes, Captain me! Stay out of this, this is strictly homicide. Captain, I got this friend, We all got these friends. I'm warning you, Jadino. back off Italian boy. Keep away from this one, it's too big for you. You screw this one up, pal, and you'll be writing pocket tickets for the rest of your life, you got that?
0: Captain, I won't let you down.
2: Good for you. That was so much better. Yeah, you like it? Really terrific. It was fantastic. uh, The the beginning felt pretty good. Yeah, yeah, it was great. I thought I'd get too much in the end. No, no, no. no. It was really terrific.
0: I'd really like to discuss this, but I gotta go save a life. Let me work on it. I'll work on it. Work on it, because it was terrific. And, And honestly, it was such a big improvement. Fantastic. Thank you. Thanks. Let's talk about that. I think this is a good segue into a lot of the cameos that show up in here, because alongside Mike Myers being, you know, charming and and Mm -hmm. having his his way with the the character here and, and a lot of the story, part of the draw of this film for me and what I found so rewarding on this watch was how many sort of loose digressions there are to just enjoy some of those comedic yeah. cameos and some of those characters popping up. So like in no particular order here, the cameos include Charles Grodin.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: the amazing Phil Hartman is here as well, as we mentioned. Michael Richard, Mike Haggerty, uh, Debbie Mazar shows up for a minute, Stephen Wright, Alan Arkin as our, our mm-hmm. police captain. And mm-hmm. the way that his scenes with uh, with Anthony LaPaglia sort of evolve was one of my favorite kind of asides mm-hmm. in the film. Oh, yeah. Uh, where, where we get to him as like this very sweet kind of police captain at first you know the who wants a hug or <laughs> i think
1: he's wearing like cardigans and stuff like he just looks cuddly as hell
0: <laughs> yes extremely cuddly he's like right in that kind of like you know ripening age and and graying and a, a little bit and and he's just very sweet and he's kind of mr rogers doubt like it's not yeah. it's not real policing let's be clear not yes. real policing uh, and then we get a scene where arkin comes back in and he's a you know he's he's a little rougher around the edges he's kind of a hard ass now he's admonishing anthony lapalia's character and like you're not supposed to be looking into this case you know you're not Mm -hmm. supposed to be making these calls you don't have the authority kind of thing you're a loose cannon
1: is this the part Uh, where he's like I'm gonna kick your spaghetti bending butt back to Milan, which the, yes. the pronunciation of Milan always stuck with me. It sounded like yeah. right said Fred <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, it's it's one of these. There are two different uh, iterations yeah. of this same joke, and both of them go over go off like gangbusters here. I, I honestly yeah. believe. Uh, because at the end of it, Anthony LaPaglia's character, you know, kind of mm-hmm. exits stage left or whatever, you know, like the way he should in the scene. And then he returns to the scene. Mm-hmm. and Arkin asks, how was that? Was that good? And and they kind of go over notes about the performance. Uh, you can I tell that this the is
1: Arkin is just like so like meek here, and he's like kind of like got his finger in his mouth, and he's like oh, mm-hmm. like he's so like almost submissive. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, give me the like. Was he like emulating like doing like doing scene work of his like acting, but you know, coach? Like, what was he? <laughs>
0: I, I can't really tell exactly what he's going for, but it, it's so perfect. And I love just like watching him, his, his sort of intonation, the decisions he's making. It feels so kind of like authentic that for a moment, I mean, it's just a really fun kind of like little meta commentary. Like it feels both like Arkin affecting mm-hmm. a sort of stereotypical police captain, but then also it looks for a moment as if both of them cease to be their characters and yeah. then are just... Alan Arkin and Anthony LaPaglia giving each other notes and working you yeah, know,
1: yeah. <laughs> and and
0: I just think it's brilliant. I think it's so so funny.
1: Yeah, and also I think like something that kind of helps is with his just the fact that he's a cop is Anthony LaPaglia used to be a soc- a pro soccer player, like he was back in Australia. Yeah. He's Australian, which is something I, I don't think I really knew about him till later in his career.
0: Wow, I would have like, never guessed.
1: Yeah, he's an Australian pro athlete that made the leap to came over here and became an actor and. Like, so you get a bit of that physicality of him, like, trying to, you know, like, hanging off the, you know, the helicopter and stuff, and when he's there to, like, save save Charlie, but, like, yeah, and he told me that, like, part of, like, this like, cop character, like, he kind of has that Brooklyn, almost Brooklyn accent. It's, like, he would just change, he would hide his accent when he first started auditioning for roles. Like, he was like, Yo, I'm from Brooklyn. Like, it just became easier to, like... <laughs> to kind of do that which I found really fascinating because I couldn't tell like he's really really good at it
0: he's so convincing it's incredible and I mean obviously like uh, with a name like Anthony Lapalia, if you ask me mm-hmm. is this guy from Sydney or is he from Brooklyn I you, yeah. you know exactly which one I'm going to
1: guess yeah yeah
0: and he just does a great work in this Arkin's amazing I think for me the other uh kind of Shining star of the mm-hmm. comedy cameos uh, is Phil Hartman when uh, when Lepalia and Mike Myers go to Alcatraz, mm-hmm. uh, and he is a uh, former guard there, now tour guide, mm-hmm. uh, who has a name who I can't recall it, something pretty generic, but he says that everyone there knows him as Vicky.
1: <laughs> everyone I interviewed about this scene just went like, I swear to God, Nancy Travis, Rob Freed. Anthony Lapaglia, I think Matt Doherty who played um Charlie's little brother. Mm-hmm. Um all did the same thing. Vicky. <laughs> and then they crack up. <laughs> like I <laughs> swear to you like everyone had the same reaction and it was just funny. Um Rob told me that the that kind of ferry ride over to the island was one of the best days of his life. Like they just like it was Phil Hartman just ripping all day and making everyone laugh. Mhm. And, like, probably one of the only people, I guess, that Mike Myers would allow to overshadow him, maybe.
0: <laughs> yeah. I, I, it's funny to think about. The the ones that really stand out to me in terms of the the cameos are the ones in which Mike Myers is actually kind of absent. Yeah. And I find that to be an interesting through line. Obviously, Arkin is working specifically with Lapalia mm-hmm. Groden in the, the same kind of beat, mm-hmm. uh, doing so. Hartman is the the outlier here for sure that he's yeah. like one of the few that's overshadowing and overshadow. He does. He is so tremendously funny doing, I mean, something that on paper isn't even particularly like funny.
1: Yeah. Like the actual yeah. lines aren't funny, but it's like, I mean, it's just the power of delivery. The power, it's just makes, makes him a genius. Like yes. what's actually a, probably on the page is really just kind of juvenile, but like, <laughs> you know, just, that his delivery, his like he kinda reminded me of the Brock Toon sketch. Do you remember when <laughs> Phil Hartman when to tear the flesh, to wear the flesh, yes. to be born of new worlds? <laughs> <laughs> um for those that don't know the Brock know the Brock Tune sketch is a Saturday night live sketch. I believe was written by Fred Wolf. Um mm where the members of a support group for people who want to stalk and kill Mr. Belvedere.
2: (laughs) Well, I guess we can vote, but we shouldn't really have to, Uh, people. All right, all those in favor who want to kill Mr. Belvedere, say aye. Aye. All those who don't think he should be killed, say nay. 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 The nays have it. He lives, but the vote shouldn't have been that close. (laughs) Which uh, brings me to an area that I think we need to discuss now. We need to do our
0: exercises. What exercises?
2: The exercise that helps keep the line between reality and fantasy a little less blurry. You'll see.
1: And Phil Hartman is like arguably the craziest of all of them. And damn, (laughs) does he nail those couple lines?
0: (laughs) He's brilliant. Um, I I just, uh, yeah, I, I love him. There's something so like immense about Mm -hmm. this kind of bullpen of talent that just kind of come in and, and purportedly for just the the opportunity to work with Mike Myers on something.
1: Yeah. Um, I think like there were, there was like a bench of people who never quite made it to like, I think Conan O'Brien was supposed to either help write or do a cameo. And Rob Freed says he has like these tapes of, I think Mike and Conan just spending like weekend and, you know, like at a hotel or whatever, just riffing and doing material and stuff. Like, so there. were I mean, it's kind of interesting, like who maybe had the opportunity and didn't or, you know, couldn't or whatever.
0: Yeah. And the ones that we get are, I mean, really excellent even, and they all seem to play to the, the comedian's strengths yeah. as well, which I, I really, really adore. It seems like they were given a, a lot of leeway, a lot of Liberty to just kind of make a character and a performance their own. Michael Richards and Mike Haggerty's characters feel exactly like what those guys did, you know, yeah. I, I mean. Richard's character is not so unlike when, you know, Cosmo Kramer has a, has a freak out on Seinfeld. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And, and Grodin too Mm -hmm. is just like so funny. And and he really only says the word no. He has a couple other lines, but he's doing a perfect Grodin performance.
1: And he does it later. I think there's a cutaway to him and Anthony LaPaglia in the car where I think Anthony's like tapping or something, doing some nervous tick. And then Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, this is bothering me. He's like, and Grodin just goes, no, it's my favorite thing in the world. <laughs> I mean, so Groden here is like another heavy hitter of like '90s cult comedy. Mm-hmm. You know his performance in Clifford, like that movie shouldn't. That's like another one. That movie sh- is a mess. Shouldn't work. It's fucking hilarious. <laughs> Those scenes with Charles Groden and um, and Martin Short are just magic. <laughs>
0: Incredible, and actually, watching this movie inspired me to just go and and look at all of my favorite Grodin clips from Midnight Run and from Clifford, respectively. Oh
1: gosh, yeah, I feel like he drew a bit from Midnight Run in this um, like you don't look like a criminal. I'm a white collar criminal, like that. Really, just deadpan was <laughs> dry. Like, <laughs> yeah, he was so
0: he was so good at this. Like I don't know, making just like utter contempt hilarious.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, all of these are are just a, a total blast. It's really fun to see all of these and, and just kind of the leeway they're given because I think on its own, the sort of like a plot of the film, the relationship between uh, Mike Myers and Nancy Travis mm-hmm. doesn't doesn't quite achieve liftoff mm-hmm. independently of all of those little moments. And so I think that it's a really kind of inspired uh, thing that the film does to mm-hmm. just let a lot of these comedians come in and kind of have their way with a moment and make yeah. it... Yeah, just this this kind of grab bag of hilarity.
1: I mean, I don't think people really appreciate the kind of really heavy lifting Nancy Travis is doing
0: mm-hmm.
1: because, like, she has to kind of sell what her character motivate motivation is, and then like what we know versus the audience what the audience doesn't know. Which I think she's masterful, but I feel like she doesn't get enough credit for what she does.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I I was gonna ask you about Nancy Travis. To me, I mean, she certainly seems like the fish out of water here and and not mm-hmm. just in the sense that, you know, she's next to Mike Myers, who's, you know, goofy and, and hilarious in his own certain way, but you can tell that she's a little bit, a little bit less comfortable in the, in the comedic role. And in that space playing yeah. against someone like a Myers, who's a lot louder and bigger, mm-hmm. um, but she certainly holds her own in certain yeah. scenes. Yeah. She's very charming. Um, and I think if anything, I, th- I think it's some of the script that, that kind of uh, robs her of a little bit of the opportunity to be, mm-hmm something more than she she could be or ends up being in the final product.
1: Yeah, there were also, like, a lot of reshoots. Um, like, there were... Like, I've... Matt Doherty, who plays Head, which, by the way, he was wearing a prosthetic head. His head is not that big. but like he was... He had to undergo, like, hours. Like, they were stitching prosthetics onto his head, like...
0: It's a planetoid.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, like, he told me there were scenes that, like... The movie, there are reshoots where so the movie ends in the, um, where it ends in the cafe with the, the new poem where, you know, Mike kind of becomes like grows up and becomes, you know, like, Hey, this is what grown ups do. They, <laughs> they have adult relationships. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, there was that scene was shot. So his whole family was supposed to be there. And I think Matt Dougherty, um, was told me he was wearing like this giant, like Rasta hat and dreadlocks, which didn't make it into the final film, but sounds like it's something that wouldn't have aged well. Yeah. Especially since like this movie kind of seems like it ages, it ages better than a lot of its contemporaries.
0: Yes. This film to me feels a lot more like a certain type of like romantic comedy throwback that yeah. has more in common with kind of like the the zany slapstick screwball kind of stuff of in earlier generation of Hollywood than it does to a
1: Preston Sturges movie or something like that.
0: Exactly that. Mm -hmm. I I felt a lot of that here and it's just with more contemporary players. None of its comedy is hyper-reliant on kind of pop culture artifacts of the moment. There isn't a lot of dated references, which I think kind of becomes uh, the the main mode of comedy in like the Mm -hmm. late 90s and especially in the 2000s. I think about this compared to a handful of like Judd Apatow movies yeah. that, you know, that came out. And you know, you watch the 40-year-old Virgin today and mm-hmm. uh it's rife with all of these kind of dated references. This yeah. movie does not fall victim to that.
1: Yeah. I mean, they kind of dance around the references. Like like they're like when when um Alan Arkin and Nathaniel Palia are filming together. It's like you could they could name check the movies they're talking, <laughs> but they don't. It's just like you, they're just you know walking through the you know the, the trope that we all recognize, right? I think the only time they really name check something is when like where Charlie calls him like Serpico in the beginning.
0: Yeah, and uh, you know these two are like, they may be kind of dated today i mean a, a starsky and hutch reference mm-hmm. you know is certainly one that maybe you know if i were to show it to a teenager today it would go over their heads mm-hmm. um but but at the very least they are more kind of like iconic reference points than some of the things that would come up in these kinds of movies
1: oh yeah yeah for sure for sure also like you
0: recognize serpico you know
1: something i also kind of like you know i really admire is um San Francisco as a character. And I feel like maybe... I mean, I am not familiar with San Francisco. So this is all just... This This is all just assumption. But what I kind of think is maybe this is kind of a glimpse of a city before the tech money ruined everything.
0: 100%.
1: Like this is somewhere where Weirdos and artists lived.
0: Yes. I'll say this much. I've been in San Francisco now for mm-hmm. almost 10 years. I came out just at the beginning of, of 2014. Um By then... Mm-hmm. Tech obviously had a hold, but e- even in the kind of intervening years mm-hmm. I have seen the kind of degradation of a lot of San Francisco culture and a lot mm-hmm. of what felt like a particular kind of energy in the city yeah uh, kind of collapse under the weight of like VC money in, mm-hmm. in that yeah. period of time it's it's very very sort of concentrated now even in comparison to 10 years ago
1: well like um, the right wing and the murdoch papers are just like oh there zombies downtown it's like well yeah <laughs> no one like rent is like what like four like the median is four thousand a month like yeah that's what happens when you <laughs> people can't afford to live somewhere
0: right no exactly yeah i mean a lot of the things that are attributed to uh you know crime in the city or or you know a lot of errant sort of drug money or, mm-hmm. you know, the homelessness problem. All, all of these things are are just, you know, dog whistles and and mm-hmm. not actually what's going on here. It absolutely is, you know, mm-hmm. that tech and VC money has come in and collapsed infrastructure yeah. around here and made everything virtually unlivable.
1: Like a lot of businesses, like laundromats and stuff, I remember, like, I think it was like 2017, just like all these service businesses that people rely on were shutting down so they just couldn't afford rent. <laughs> uh,
0: but the the movie does find i think a a place in san francisco that still does have i mean lingering as it may be and and and, you know just very marginal as it may be uh north beach has a lot of that quality Mm. of of kind of san francisco culture and feeling remaining and it's one of the few places that does and of course uh you know it is a great san francisco movie it's a great san Francisco as character sort of film uh you get the beloved fog city diner, which closed mm-hmm. and then reopened as fog city later on, on the Embarcadero. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of this film takes place specifically in North beach on Columbus Avenue. It's, it's mm-hmm. Vesuvio it's city lights. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's a couple of other places right across the street from it and just up that block. That's right there by kind of where the, the trans America building now stands at the foot of it, the Coppola mm-hmm. building. Uh, but it, it that that street is one and even today, you know, in, in contemporary films is the one that often is used to mm-hmm. exemplify it. this is San Francisco, this particular angle, this particular shot right here. Mm-hmm. So they, they, they picked well. And uh, it's one of the few places that's kind of persevered as that sort yeah. of San Francisco energy. Yeah,
2: mm. You know, Charlie, I want to thank you for helping me out today with your shot. Oh, no, 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 no. You were no. really nice. Oh, I was nice, nice. Evidently, you think of me as a woman friend. And what is wrong with being nice? Nothing. Charlie? Yes? Name one bad thing you've done. Well, I've done bad things. But let's talk about you for a second. Tell me one bad thing that you've done, and it better be evil. How evil? Really evil. Like so evil that you would say it was evil. Like it's the fruits of the devil. Evil. For example, how many people have you brutally murdered? Well, brutal is a very subjective word. I mean, what's brutal to one person might be totally reasonable to somebody else.
1: Like this movie kind of like it ages well in that way. It's just like it is so white. <laughs> this movie is so white.
0: Yeah, I'm 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 glad that there aren't too many of those kinds of things that uh you know, age poorly because of uh, jokes made at the expense of marginalized communities. It doesn't wow. really happen here. Uh, the yeah, only yeah. place it even gets kind of close, I think, <laughs> is in the introductory scene with uh, Charlie's parents, where uh, we kind uh, of danced around their sort of conspiratorial thinking and their sort of, like, uh, obsession with, you know, like, the World Daily News and all of this yeah. kind of, like, hack reporting.
1: Yeah, they're kind of but i think i feel like that's more indicative of like this is like i mean i I don't think it's an endorsement of those things so it's just showing like this is like the kind of own little world these characters live in these dipshit world these characters live in
0: <laughs> no for sure absolutely and i mean by today's standards that quality feels very quaint you know yeah. it was yeah. still kind of a period there in the early 90s where we could see this kind of like conspiratorial thinking and the sort of uh, outre, like kind of like news, mm-hmm. faux journalism yeah. and think of it as kind of like a, a quirk rather than something that's like really sort Actually of insidious toxic
1: and leads, yeah. to, you know, like, it leads to mass shootings. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Exactly that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. I think there was one part that really just did not age well at all. I think um, Charlie's dad calls Charlie the F at some point.
0: Yeah. I think he calls him a, a fairy uh in in the version of salsa but uh, obviously it is you know very much like uh, homophobic language like used to to deride charlie's character
1: yeah and it's also just like i think the understanding is his dad was very drunk at that point i think he was slurring like like i think it's more so this is my drunk father and not we're reinforcing like you know homophobic
0: (laughs) that character of of stewart is one that has a lot of i think would be kind of like you know cliched qualities that in a real person may end up, uh, you know, leading to a lot of of therapy for, for his progeny. Yeah. Um, but within the context of this movie, and of course, the you know, the sort of like comedic bent to it and the way it's infused with a lot of the silliness, uh, it, it doesn't feel as insidious, yeah. Uh, yeah. To, to steal your word. And I think it's a good jumping off point to talk about that mm-hmm. character and, and Mike Myers portrayal, because this mm-hmm. uh, is... Uh, Like I said, when people were quoting back parts of this movie to me, Mm -hmm. uh, I I would say a majority of them Mm -hmm. were lines spoken in this thick, affected Scottish accent that Mike Myers throws on to play his father, Stuart, in the film. Mm -hmm.
2: Well, it's a well-known fact, Sonny Jim, that there's a secret society of the five wealthiest people in the world known as the Pentaverit, mm. who run everything in the world, including the newspapers, and meet tri-annually at a secret country mansion in Colorado known as the Meadows. So who's in this Pentaverite? The Queen, the Vatican, the Gettys, the Rothschilds, and Colonel Sanders before he went tits up. Oh, I hated the Colonel with his wee beady eyes and that smug look on his face. Oh, you're going to buy my chicken. Oh, Dad, how can you hate the Colonel? Because he puts an addictive chemical in his chicken that makes you crave it fortnightly, smart
0: ass. Just the energy he brings to it and, and yeah. it, uh, you know, is is sort of a indicator of a lot of what Mike Myers will do comedically for the next decade of his career
1: well you see like little kind he leaves little breadcrumbs about kind of his like overall myers multiverse let's call it Mm -hmm. like for example when he's walking through the what's the name of that park that they walk through um when mike myers and nancy travis are on their date
0: oh that's uh that's alamo square park
1: okay um so when he talks about like are you evil you know, not evil, but evil, you know, you see the kind of the seed of Dr. Evil. Mm-hmm. And I think there's some other points where he just kind of hints at like a James Bond, like, like having a James Bond kind of lair and stuff. Like, which, I mean, there's a lot of seeds for Austin Powers that are kind of planted around here. And the pentaveret that I guess that show that Mike Myers came out with was, is basically yeah. just like a fleshed out version of like what was happening at his parents' house with, you know, they're conspiracy theories.
0: <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. We'll talk a little bit about that and and kind of where his career is now in a little bit. But you're right. Like there are the breadcrumbs there definitely of Doctor Evil. Obviously, Myers would uh, incorporate heavy prosthetics and a mm-hmm. thick Scottish accent for his character Fat Bastard in the Austin mm-hmm. Powers movies, um, and of course, this is the man who uh, inflicted. Mm -hmm. shrek mania on the world uh and and that character is all based around a a sort of more muted version of this exact same uh character accent and and proclivity
1: apparently mike myers like that was a decision that that um shrek would be like his accent would be scottish like came during filming and was a very expensive decision that like (laughs) yeah (laughs) okay i guess we gotta reshoot some stuff to the tune of x you know a million dollars because mike myers now decided this (laughs) (laughs) Shrek's got to have a Scottish accent
0: that sounds like a Mike Myers decision and uh, you know to to his in his defense for that one I guess you know they hired Mike late in the game because of Chris Farley's passing when he was supposed Mm -hmm. to be the initial uh voice of of that character but it it does feel very much like uh his his sort of uh behavior to say yeah yeah we're going we're gonna to go this route with this character. I'm going to do a Scottish accent with it.
1: Yeah. Something I've really, like, I've never forgotten. I it was interviewing a screenwriter once, and he told me, well, listen, we have a saying in Hollywood. You can be the biggest asshole you want, as long as you're making someone else money.
0: And for a little while there, for a long while there, Mike Myers did. Yeah. <laughs> he did make a lot of money. Um, yeah. Even this film, which I think is kind of, like, regarded as a cult classic, I feel like these kinds of films that get, you know, sort of picked up for that, uh, midday Comedy Central canon, yeah, are films that tend to be underloved, underdiscussed. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, kind of box office bombs that are, are reclaimed steadily by a new generation. This film didn't do that poorly at the box office, from mm-hmm. what I gather. It actually, yeah. I mean, it did. It did make money more so than just breaking even. Like it was yeah. fairly widely seen.
1: Um, I think maybe it was just considered a failure because, like, this came after Wayne's World. What I, the way um, Robbie Fox broke it down to me is uh, casting for the movie, um, it kind, he said it came down to Chevy Chase and Mike Myers, and they both had movies open, I think maybe the same weekend where Chevy Chase's was that like, that Invisible Man movie that John Carpenter directed. Yes. such a bizarre like <laughs> confluence of, <laughs> you know, factors. And then like Wayne's World, which opens up to be this huge hit and cultural phenomenon.
0: Right. I'll, 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 I'll correct myself, actually. This movie did not make that much money. Okay. okay. <laughs> I, for whatever reason, when I thought I saw this, I think I got the numbers confused and I was like, oh, it was like a $15 million movie made like 20, 25 million. It's actually the other way around. $20 million budget, $11.5 at the box office. So it did, in fact, bomb, only made back about half of what uh, it cost to make
1: um rob freed the way he puts it is that this had maybe had a great life like it had like a great second life and like vhs and then on tv and then mm-hmm. kind of becoming this like repertoire you know movie theater
0: yeah i mean it's a film like i said you know i, I think is very beloved mm-hmm. uh by a certain generation of movie lovers and and comedy lovers mm-hmm. uh I think a, a big part of that is the saturation of it. there are plenty of these kinds of movies, these sort of comedies that did very poorly uh, in terms of their box office numbers. Also this one, you know, didn't exactly launch with critics as, either. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it was, wasn't all that loved. Yeah. No. Um, But when you get to it at a certain age and in a certain context, i.e. with commercial interruptions midday on Comedy Central, Mm -hmm. uh, you you wind up kind of falling in love with it and you, you catch it multiple times.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's like way better than it has any right to be. I'm just, you know what I mean? I'm just like, well, this should be garbage. No, this is a gem. This is a hidden gem. Why aren't people talking about this movie every minute of the day? Like when yeah. do you have that experience, like when you discover, you know, like someone who likes this movie, it's almost like a secret handshake and you just start quoting at each other. Like whether it's head move or, or, you know, Vicky, you know, Vicky's cameo or just right. like, or Michael Richards or any, just any of them, any of them. Like, like when you do that thing where you just quote at each other until you both need to take a nap. Like <laughs>
0: I, I can't say I have it with this film. Like I said, I, I haven't seen it in some time since I, I did uh for for uh, the purpose of this episode, but I do have lots of comedies like that where it, yeah. it, I mean it really is. Yes, it's yeah. like it's like some sort of strange magnetism all of a sudden where when someone else knows it, uh it's it's a very meaningful thing. I have that, admittedly, with uh the movie Pootie Tang. I 2003 comedy. I love it too. <laughs> uh d- Despite its its writer director, uh, yeah, it's got
1: some problematic elements. I mean, yeah, there's no getting around that. But I think, oh my god, that movie's hilarious,
0: absolutely hysterical. And it's another one of those films I think where you know I don't think anybody saw it. It mm-hmm. it wound up finding purchase like mm-hmm. as you know something that people could that like a Comedy Central could get the rights to mm-hmm. easily and quickly and and play and multiple times during the yeah. day, and they and did. They did. Uh, and, and then people end up finding it and kind of falling in love with it, right? It's it's something mm-hmm. silly. It's something passable. Uh, and it's, as you said, funnier than it has any right to be for the kind of movie and the so reputation think, it like, has. With
1: the editing, like the graceless kind of editing. And I know there was some studio stuff that went on with Pudi Tang where it's just like, I think the kind of intended essence essence was stripped, but like what
0: does
1: mm-hmm. still really works.
0: Yeah. And I get the sense that that's the case with uh, Axe Murder too. Mm-hmm. You know, it has its it has its merits i think mm-hmm. beyond just also being silly um the last act of this film i actually find really well done in terms yeah. of its atmosphere in terms mm-hmm. of its pacing when it kind of pivots to being like a parody of like a hammer horror or like a, a hitchcock kind of thriller mm-hmm. um and then when of course spoilers to everyone who hasn't seen it amanda Plummer is revealed to be the actual axe murderer yeah um uh, those scenes on the rooftop, the lightning strikes, the kind of spooky house. I, I love all of it. It has a oh, yeah. very, very kind of fun, chaotic vibe to it.
1: My favorite is when um Charlie is at the check-in the reception desk and Harriet has a headache and she goes to the gift shop to find um to the to find the tylenol or whatever. And the mm-hmm. guy at the um at the reception desk is a character actor I'm blanking on, but you know, you've seen him in a million things, yes. like, Alex, etc. He goes, hey you really think she has a headache? <laughs> Like that one little line.
0: <laughs> it's it's bizarre, and it's it does it lands perfectly. It's really yeah. funny when they go to the restaurant, and there's this weird, almost like I don't know. It's it's got like a weird kind of cultish energy to it that feels yeah. like something out of like The Shining, almost yeah. like in terms yeah. of its kind of atmosphere. Uh, you know, it, it's the the dancing and the mm-hmm. the honeymoon chair and and kind of the terror of all of it. All these yeah. like you know intense close-ups that are happening and camera movements. Uh I I found myself unsettled. I was like, this is actually very effective at evoking the kind of thing that this is parodying right now. It's it's stylistically also doing a great job on top of just being funny.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's I mean there's so many things. I mean I noticed something new every time I watch this. Um I think the last thing I noticed on my last rewatch was um there's something going on in the background where Harriet and um, you know Harriet and Charlie are talking, and Amanda Plummer's character is um, hunched over a board game, and you realize she's like playing a board game of herself.
0: Mm-hmm. But when she's
1: hunched in the background, and she's concentrating what's happening. Of you know, these,
0: <laughs> yeah, so many weird little kind of moments like that. Uh, I and I love how silly that gets. I'm thinking about the moment where charlie walks in on amanda Plummer in the shower oh yeah after after he sleeps with harriet (laughs) and it of itself you know is is kind of a silly fun gag moment where he Mm -hmm. walks in on this woman he doesn't know and says i'm sorry i didn't know you were here and then he comes downstairs and she's completely clothed dressed dry sitting on the couch already waiting for him there's just these kind of strange jumps in logic that are really fun
1: oh yeah 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 or um what would you say to Silver Dollar Pancake? <laughs> the way she sells it on the entire, like, breakfast menu is in like... <laughs> the cut right to the cereal. Sorry, yes. there's other things. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Alongside, you know, I'll continue the the quote spree here. Where he, yeah. you know, it's 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 Fruit Loops, and and he says that's okay. I like Fruit Loops; they're you know tasty and surprisingly rich in fiber. I'm a big I'm a big fan of Apple Jacks, and then Plumber says, "Oh, we have those." <laughs> And then it doesn't go anywhere. (laughs) He he just kind of says, oh, good, good. Well done.
1: I just love how it's like, it's so silly, but you really kind of get that tension and that fear. Like there's that kind of undercurrent of like, what is happening here?
0: Completely. And we haven't sung her praises yet, I think, of all the cast members, but I I love Amanda Plummer. I think doing this show uh, has just like really made me like, kind of fall head over heels for her watching her in things like freeway in the fisher king i think she's just like a, a wonderful kind of weird and and so distinct as a performer have you seen
1: free jack have you covered free jack on the show
0: no i haven't seen free jack Amanda
1: the plumber and, and her nun character holy shit
0: okay yeah noted yeah, yeah i just I, I adore her and i think she does such a good job with this character and being Mm -hmm. able to turn that on from being kind of a meek strange sort of side character Mm -hmm. to immediately being the murderous psychopath it's a perfect range for her
1: yeah nancy nancy travis is like she i think the way she described amanda is like she is terrifying in the best way like anything you think would be like being in a scene with her it is like she's incredible like yeah i feel like she's one that doesn't get enough love like she doesn't really she hasn't been given her flowers and
0: yeah i think i think that's one of the kind of uh the passions of this show it, it's maybe become kind of one of our like causes is is mm-hmm. uh really selling our audience on amanda Plummer and just the majesty and brilliance of her as a as a character actor
1: yeah he said um matt Delbert, He said one of his highlights was like being just being in the transpo van with amanda and she's like oh boy that's kooky she's kooky <laughs> and <he starts> giggling. <laughs>
0: I mentioned earlier that there is a version of this movie that I could see being slightly more self-aware about mm-hmm. the Charlie character. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Obviously, one that you know probably is granted by hindsight and mm-hmm. you know twenty some odd years now, thirty years now. God, good lord, uh, of of comedies in the inner rim and and the evolution of the kind of things they talk about and explore. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do find it funny that you know this movie is kind of on paper. Uh, one that you could explain as uh, a man who is seemingly well put together and you mm-hmm. know rel- relatively sensible, mm-hmm. falling deeper and deeper into the conspiratorial thinking that uh, his parents hold, and and you know kind of becoming his his family's child in a way.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, I kind of wondered if his kind of arrest and development was like part and parcel of these oppressive parents. <laughs> mm-hmm.
3: <laughs>
0: Yeah, there's there's a version of this movie now where it's like it is about that trauma, right? It is mm-hmm. about uh about the, the way that this family has instilled this sort of generational mm-hmm. uh neuroses and, and perception and paranoia into their son.
1: Yeah. Someone is out to get you, whether it's, you know, like five, you know, like five bankers, you know, whether it's your anti-Semitic theory about like five bankers in a cave or <laughs> <laughs> Or, you know, mortality and marriage is ready to just carry you off, just expedite that, you know, the rest of your life into the grave. It's <laughs> something out there is going to get you.
0: And I think, you know, speaking on that Pentaverate mm. <laughs> <and> that, conspira- <laughs> that conspiracy, I guess, an interesting place maybe to close is talking about sort of the trajectory of Mike Myers' career after mm-hmm. this. Yeah. This is obviously a career bomb. Mm-hmm. Um which I maintain that I never said otherwise on this program. I never said this film was successful. I only ever said it was a box office bomb. I'm only ever correct on this program. I never need to uh, modulate or correct any sort of facts that I spit here. (laughs) After this, Mike Myers would continue on saturday night live for a handful of years i think it was 95 that he finally left
1: hmm, okay. some six
0: some six years to the day after he started in, in 1989 and then takes a couple of years off and returns with one of the biggest hits of his career which yeah. is austin powers um inspired whatever he was doing in that interim maybe he does take year-long vacations maybe he needs them yeah. in order to come back with something like an austin powers um but, you know, this is a, a huge hit as is the sequel to it. I, I am not going to speak to the uh, successes of Goldmember because I don't know off the top of my head. But I know mm-hmm. that I went and saw that movie at least twice in a the theater. So mm-hmm. it was successful uh, with the the hit factory collective. Um, and then Shrek, of course, knocking it out and, and becoming a huge hit. Uh, but he gets into some legal trouble with uh, Universal during mm-hmm. this period too, because he's supposed to make a movie based on his Dieter character from oh, Sprocket, yeah. I'm sorry, Night Live, uh, which ends up leading to him having to agree to be uh, in the cat in the hat.
1: Oh. <laughs>
0: which uh, is not his finest moment commercially, does not do all that well either. Well,
1: co-stars complained about him too, right? Amy, what's her name?
0: Yeah, yeah. It was supposed so- to be a nightmare on that one, even in comparison to some of his other sets. And I have to imagine it's because he was there kind of under duress.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, under duress, I can't even imagine like, cause he's like, he's controlling just in, you know, his, his like default setting. So yes. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, but after that, I'm trying to think here, you know, what, what he does after the fact we, we get the love guru. Um, we get a couple of, of little cameo moments here and there. Uh, there was and I,
1: an article i think it was entertainment weekly that came out that talked about how much of hollywood was actively rooting for him to fail when hmm. the old like, around the love guru because like people were just so tired of how they treated he was they were treated by him interesting <laughs> kind of goes back to the saying like you know you can be as big an asshole as you want as long as you're making someone else money mm-hmm. love guru not making anyone money
0: <laughs> and i think that's ultimately kind of the the legacy that i think of now with mike myers is you know someone who is uh you know unequivocally hilarious yeah. when when he's working with the right material and when he's you know ha- has a little bit of that spark of inspiration uh but he has his misses and <laughs> With him being someone who seems like a a pretty difficult guy to work with, it kind of feels like his career has steadily become more and more insular, mm-hmm. uh, and to the point where his his most recent work uh, was a Netflix comedy series, as we mentioned, based on the pentaverate theory espoused mm-hmm. by his character in in this film. Uh, have you watched any of it, Maggie? No, I've not. I tried to watch it. Mm -hmm. For the purposes of our conversation today, just to inform myself, Mm -hmm. unwatchable is maybe too nice a term. It is it is not is not good.
1: (laughs) The thing I find interesting about his trajectory, like axe murderer didn't do well at the box office, and you never see him as an everyman again. Mm -hmm. Like he's either hidden under makeup, fake teeth, or he's animated. Like I that seems very that seems like a very significant fracture to me in his career, in his movie career. Like, you just never see him as a guy in a sweater again. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, which is unfortunate because, mm-hmm. I mean, this movie proves, if anything, and, and some of his, you know, kind of minor appearances here and there, outside of makeup and outside of like mm-hmm. comedic performances, he's not an untalented performer. He's actually a pretty pretty decent actor when he wants mm-hmm. to be.
1: I mean, it's something I, I, my feeling about him is like part of the controlling and the ego is like just a very deep-seated insecurity with him. Hmm. and I feel like that drives most of it just there's a self-loathing in him that's that is really was really sad like when you just kind of get to the bottom of it
0: yeah it certainly seems that way and, and you know when I talk about the kind of insularity and mm-hmm. and sort of you know lack of any any sort of naysayers in his vicinity with regards to the Pentaverate, mm-hmm. you can you can get that sense immediately it it's yeah. really uh i I think kind of the logical endpoint of that mm-hmm. insecurity and that unwillingness to just be himself in mm-hmm. any sort of performance. Um, the pentavert is made up, of course, of five elites who run the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it avoids any sort of, as you mentioned, Maggie, any sort of what could potentially be maybe anti-Semitic tropes or mm-hmm. any sort of concerns of, mm-hmm. uh, you know, conspiratorial thinking that is noxious or insidious in any way by mm-hmm. pointing out at the beginning that the, the catch with these five people who run the world is they're all very nice. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and that is sort of the hook of the show is it's Mike Myers as five different people mm-hmm. doing silly voices under a lot of prosthetics and wigs, mm-hmm. um, being nice guys with a couple of quirks. Uh, it, it doesn't make for all that compelling comedy.
1: Like, I wonder what would happen if he tried an everyman again or just someone who didn't exist. Like, would that be liberating? What do you find a new, you know, like, Would that be challenging? Would that unearth like a new kind of error for him? What, you know?
0: Yeah. And it's, it's interesting to see some of his SNL, uh, Cast members and and some of the alum of, of that mm-hmm. show lean into some of that kind of more serious, dramatic acting yeah. and find their purchase there. I mean, I think mm-hmm. of someone like Adam Sandler, who's mm-hmm. had a couple of like knockout performances, uh, Punch Drunk Love, Uncut Gems, mm-hmm. even something like Funny People, which is still comedy, but very much more of a muted form of, of mm-hmm. an Adam Sandler performance. Sure. More more contemporarily, Bill Hader uh, doing something like, uh, like Barry, which yeah. is... Yeah. Very funny, but I mean, he's going to go on now. I think, and, and has said that he's going to kind of take a Jordan Peele route and yeah. direct a horror movie next. Uh, you, you wonder what it would be like to to see Mike Myers do something that is like markedly out of his comfort zone.
1: Yeah, or maybe just like not even just out of his comfort zone, but just like something that kind of caused him to confront whatever this fear is. I won't let him be truly seen. I guess. Mm-hmm. But I don't. I don't mean to like you know psychoanalyze a guy I don't know, but. <laughs>
0: I think you're totally right, though, as mm-hmm. a, a man who feels like maybe he's perpetually on vacation with his family <laughs> as a callback. Uh, it, it it would, I think, be interesting to see where that goes. And otherwise, I I think we're kind of doomed to mm-hmm. see stuff like the love guru and the pentavirate yeah. for the rest of his career, though he has teased, I guess, as recently as last year that there is a, an Austin Powers 4 on the way.
1: Mm-hmm. How do you feel about that, as someone who's a huge Austin Powers fan?
0: I mean, that too, to me, kind of feels like it's a retreat into familiarity and comfort mm-hmm. for him. Yeah. Um, you yeah. know, again, not to psychoanalyze or or pathologize things too much here, but like, uh, while I'm sure that there will be mm-hmm. some rewards in that, as somebody who loves those movies, I feel like it is something that will feel very much like kind of a, a dance through the motions a little bit.
1: I mean, there's things tend to surprise me. I mean, I, huge Twin Peaks fan, didn't really, wasn't really expecting much from the third Twin Peaks. I was mm-hmm. floored, I was floored. I was like, this is perfect, what? I didn't even <laughs> know I wanted this, and here it is.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, there there are certainly things that are, you know, expressions of mm-hmm. the evolution of an artist wanting to return to his material. <laughs> I think of something like a Twin Peaks, or, I mean, in, in a different regard even, you know, but but mm-hmm. something similar maybe, like, a George Miller coming back after years to do a Mad Max movie. And Mm -hmm. I I remember people being cautious about that. Yeah. I was not one of them. I was like, it's George Miller. Trust the plan here. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then ends up making maybe, you know, the, the the best entry in the entire series. Oh God. Yeah. Uh, Incredible. But you know, maybe, maybe there's an Austin powers four here. Maybe there is, is something, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, that, that we might call the juice. (laughs) <laughs> that this one could be injected with that would make it uh you know something really entertaining and really funny and really inspired it it would certainly be a nice kind of career win for mike myers but i i am always cautious about these rehashes of of things from yesteryear um yeah. and yeah. and things that are kind of recalling stuff that was uh you know much much bigger 25 years ago
1: there's nothing that seems like more worthless in hollywood than a new idea right now right like <laughs>
0: Yeah, I mean, it's pretty unbelievable. It's it's kind of sad. I mean, even, you know, things like our our beloved Mission Impossible. Mm-hmm. Um, I know this one's going to be a blast. They always yeah. are. It's Tom Cruise, you know, like the, the man is a, a fucking miss, missile. Like he he will not stop until yeah. he's, he's dead and buried. Uh, he
1: won't stop until he gets killed on a film set. Like he, I think it's his goal to just like go out doing a stunt. Yeah. Like, so it, then we had just, it has to be like, we're, so we're always forever talking about him, you know, and his commitment to stunts.
0: I, I, that may be it. I mean, I, I like to believe that maybe, you know, he's going to like call that particular era of his career quits after the last mission impossible movie next year or the year after, I guess now, if it's delayed, but even, even this most recent one, this dead reckoning, you know, part one, Mm -hmm. uh, I, I noticed that a lot of it is a callback to De Palma's original film. It feels like it's coming full circle and it feels like a lot of the tease of this conclusion is making a lot of, of gestures towards, a thing that started it all back when, don't you remember? <laughs> and that to me, I think, you know, there are right ways to do it. There are not great ways to do it. Um, but it it certainly is, uh, it makes things interesting, you know, exploring this particular era of filmmaking that seems yeah. to be kind of like the apex of original ideas and yeah. the success of Hollywood at its height during this period. Mm-hmm. Um, and And now we're just getting an endless onslaught of people returning to
1: Well, we also, like, I feel like in this period, like, we could go, you can go to the theater, like, okay, there's going to be a legal, like, a mid, you can see, like, a mid-budget courtroom thriller, or you can see a horror movie, or you can see, like, an erotic thriller, or you can see a comedy, or you can see a romantic comedy, and now it's just, like, superhero, 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 um, Paul Schrader's got something that's cool. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, there's Um, there's
0: no in-between space, right? There's no, like mid-budget but commercially viable ideas it's yeah. either like you know uh, uh the 50th iteration of pick p- pickpocket that paul schrader's doing with like a neo-nazi um which hey uh, i will let him keep doing that type of movie yeah. for the rest of his career i love it um or it's the other thing like you know we, we can either go see master gardener or the flash this weekend
1: yeah yeah exactly And it's just, it feels like there's not really a lot to choose from and like movies aren't not that I think movies have to be serious or you know and and difficult and dense, but like just movies for grown-ups. Mm-hmm. Like like a movie where like a hole doesn't open up in the sky and like half the movie is people looking up in awe at something happening in the sky. You know what I mean?
0: <laughs> I know exactly what you mean. And yeah. I think, you know, this film for you know even not being a a noteworthy success or a feather in the cap for Myers during the nineties does still feel like it's a comedy aimed at a demographic that is slightly older than, you know, uh, the, the take your kids kind yeah. of thing that, that a lot of comedies aim for now when they're not, you know, kind of gratuitous R-rated ventures.
1: That, and it's like kind of quirky and fun and original. It's like, hey, we're making a movie about fear of mortality as it's tied to, you know, marriage and... You know, just like it's saying, but it's still really fun and engaging and lighthearted, and but dark too. It's just like it's—it's it's like so complex. This movie, which is so interesting to me.
0: Yeah, it's—it's it's a really rich comedy. It's—it's it's full of rewards. I—I I loved getting a chance to revisit it uh, mm-hmm. for for this podcast. Um, so, yeah, I, I will thank you, Maggie Sirota, for that for for getting me to watch a movie I have not watched in probably twenty. Yeah, (laughs) Um, yeah, always a a treat to be able to kind of rediscover something and find out like, oh, this isn't just good because I I remember it from when I was a kid, but like, Mm -hmm. it's, it's good because it actually, it actually is good.
1: Yeah, no. I've watched some movies I thought were funny as a kid, and I was like, kind of wanted to like go back in time and kick my own ass. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, I have that abrupt revelation whenever I try to show Carly something that I remember loving as like a teenager, as like a budding cinephile, and I'm like, I haven't seen this movie in forever. I remember loving it. We put it on, and I'm like, I am so sorry. <laughs>
1: <laughs> she's reconsidering her whole relationship. Like, she's like, mom, I think I made a big mistake.
2: She was a thief, you got to believe She stole my heart and my cat Betty, Judy, Josie and those hot pussy cats They make me horny, Saturday morning Girls of cartoons won't leave me in ruins I want to be Betty's Barney Hey Jane, get me off this crazy thing
1: Cold love. I pulled up a spy magazine um, uh, clip. They were previewing the 90s, um, like the summer movie slate. And there's some really kind of mean gossip in here I thought I'd share.
0: (laughs) Oh, please do. I want to hear that. Absolutely.
1: The movie reportedly started out with a funny script, but Myers and his SNL buddies rewrote it. (laughs) Damn. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> halfway through filming, director Thomas Schlamme and Myers stopped speaking. Unable to decide whether he was Robin Williams or Alec Baldwin, Myers alterna- alternately entertained and terrorized the crew. He was a psycho, one production source said. 5% of the time, he added levity. And 85% of the time, he added havoc. Myers repeatedly demanded on-the-set rewrites and threw hissy fits and disappeared for several hours. Yeah, the, um, Rob told me about like having disagreements with tommy about whether a camera should move or not at any time if um mike saw um like tommy laying down dolly tracks to move a camera he would just retreat back to his um he just retreat back to his trailer and it, mm. like, it would take hours to get him out <laughs> okay so here's an amusing anecdote which sounds really creepy during a love scene with the actor attractive Travis, Myers asked a male production assistant to do a seductive dance just out of camera range to keep him excited, apparently as a joke. In another comic turn, Myers, attempting to atone for his chronic lateness, emerged from his trailer nude from the waist down and squirmed in director Shlamy's lap. Wow.
0: <laughs> Interesting. It's kind of weird how I, I feel like during this era of Hollywood, there's always this report of like when a comedian really wants to like improve morale specifically a male comedian uh it just means revealing their penis to the yeah. entire set like yeah. uh, something there but
1: <laughs> yeah <laughs> like you know it's like it's like okay you can show us your butt when it's like called for in the scene but they don't get that that's like something you want to see like <laughs>
0: we've we've evolved a little bit i think in terms of the the set politics now to kind mm-hmm. of see that for for what it is but it, it I feel like it's a thing that happened on like reportedly like fairly brothers sets too yeah, or like yeah where it was them rather rather than you know any of the cast members but that they would you know try to you know get get people to laugh and get a chuckle out of everyone and get the energy going by like whipping their dick out and, yeah but like that's
1: actually harassing everyone
0: <laughs> <laughs> not what that's for guys not yeah. not something we co-sign on hit factory pod
1: yeah it kind of makes me all the more. yeah but i i didn't like wasn't really clued into spy when I was writing my story. So I was like, oh, wow. Now it makes all those more sense. Why Tommy Schlami would not answer any email or phone call.
0: (laughs) Yeah. It's funny to hear that Mike Myers apparently went on some like huge diet to try to get in shape for uh, the role. Cause the few times that we see him like shirtless in this, he's not exactly toned. He's got a pretty average build.
1: Yeah. Just like a dude, just a dude.
0: (laughs) Uh, But maybe, Hey, maybe that's an improvement over where he was after Wayne's world, you know, having a little bit of like a beer gut or something, (laughs) not, not to body shame, Mike Myers. I'm just going to say, uh, if you need any tips, we can talk a little bit about a workout regimen, some nutrition, you know, maybe we can get you somebody to help you with that. Someone who worked for Marvel or DC to get, you know. (laughs) get one of them in shape there there's there's options here
1: um or just you know i just like look wherever you want to look i'm always you know what you don't gotta do a goddamn thing just be you
0: that's right Be you hey and maybe it would maybe it's funnier that way right yeah. maybe maybe this is just all gossip from the rag known as spy <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> um i mean i definitely when well, people will spoke about it later like when i was talking to rob freed who asked me so is mike involved no is, to, is Tommy? No. And he's like, big sigh. And then he's just like, there are a lot of hurt feelings still about that movie, hmm. <laughs> which is like kind of like when I guess when a movie hits an anniversary and it has any kind of notoriety and no one capitalizes on the anniversary, that's the first clue.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's a film that I think probably has a, a much warmer place in the hearts of fans and people yeah. who kind of like aged with it <laughs> than a lot of the people who were involved in making it.
1: Oh yeah. That that was like one of the hardest things to really put my head around. Like this movie that it brought me so much joy and was formative. Like I consider this movie formative to my humor and who I am. And it's just like, then you realize this movie is a source of trauma for the people (laughs) who worked on it. Like that's a hard thing to reckon with.
0: (laughs) It is. It's always difficult with these kinds of films where like, you know, Mm -hmm. you see how the sausage gets made and all of a sudden it's like, Oh, I'm, I'm delighting in something that, uh, was a, a a very acute pain point,
1: yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs>
0: yeah well, I'm not going to let it affect my love of this movie too much more and And I hope you won't either, Maggie, because it really is a special comedy. It really is a lot of fun. um and I am so, so thankful to you for bringing it to us our our resident expert. thank you. Uh, thank you so very much for being. Thank
1: you for recognizing my authority. Thank you.
0: I will always, I will continue to uh, preach the good word and let people know that if they need somebody who knows everything about the film, it is you, Maggie Sirota. Uh, A question for you, for our listeners, where can people find you and your work around the internet? Okay.
1: So I'm not really a staff writer anymore anywhere. So you can find me on Twitter at Maggie Sirota. Um, You can find me i have a substack professor garbage and you can find that at uh not no at just maggie sirota at substack.com and that's where i am now just like and keep your eyes out is all i'll say ominously
0: ooh nice tease for the hit factory fam keep your eyes peeled for the stuff Mm -hmm. maggie's going to be doing uh i'm waiting for the first guest on our show to finally say i'm also on blue sky Hasn't happened yet. I am yet. on
1: Blue Sky at Maggie
0: <laughs> The the Hit Factory family. Uh, well, both the co-hosts are now official on Blue Sky as of this week too. Uh, so it'll be it'll be interesting to see how that starts getting incorporated as we start seeing um, yeah. more of Elon's decisions at Twitter. I'll just say, okay. by any means, for the time being, uh, you can follow along with Hit Factory on Twitter and Instagram at Hit Factory Pod. Uh, You can subscribe to the show at patreon.com slash hitfactorypod for bi-weekly bonus episodes and a lot of other fun content over there for just $5 per month. We'll give a shout out uh, to our overlords. Their names are Linda, Jesse K., Jared Murray, Omar. Thank you all so much for your continued support. And we'll catch you all the next time. Take care.